0: Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing, I'm Peter Switzer, thanks for joining me. On tonight's program, St. Wong looks at reporting season and gives us three types of stocks that he's looking at. The ones he's interested in and he might be buying, the ones that look interesting but he's not buying yet, he wants to see a little bit more information on them, and the ones he thinks are rejectable. And some retailers are in that category. And then Paul Ricard interviewed the CFO of BHP, David Lamont just after BHP uh, reported, and the dividend now has grown to 11%. So Paul's interview with David Lamont about the future of BHP is an interesting one. And then we uh, talked to Margaret Lomas of Destiny Financial. And Margaret's one of the best property experts in this country. And she talks about why Adelaide is actually booming, doing much better than most other capital states and cities. And she says a lot of things are changing there uh, to explain why Adelaide is doing so well. She then looks at Perth and the suburbs that have enormous potential. She thinks Perth is a a good place for property investors. And also places east of Melbourne getting down towards sale and places like that. puts a pretty good argument for people to consider these areas either to live in or to be a property investor. And I also get to to ask her, well, if house prices are going to fall by as much as banks say, and she doubts whether they will, uh, how would you play it as an expert? And she is certainly an expert in the property investing space. So that's the show. Let's kick off now with S.T. Wong from Prime Value. Well, joining us now is St Wong, the fund manager from Prime Value. How are you, St?
1: I'm good, Pete. Very well.
0: Okay. What do you? Last time we spoke, I guess I was asking you, and I know I would have been asking you, yeah, you know, is the worst behind us? Is this the bottoming process? And you're kind of cautiously believing that it probably was right. What's your current position?
2: I think the results season so far, last two weeks, uh, really confirms that Pete uh, that you know we're working through the uh, down cycle process. And from my from where I sit, a number of companies have been coming out with somewhat weaker guidance into next year. But the pleasing thing is that um, share prices have held up quite well. So what's telling me, Pete, is that at this moment. The market is starting to bake in um, a soft economic growth scenario into the next two years, and correspondingly, corporate earnings uh, kind of softening alongside that. So, so far, in summary, reporting season for the first two weeks in Australia, I think it's been pleasantly better than expected. In in, in short, yeah, yeah. Let's be let's be
0: honest here, St. Wong, and I know you people like you and me can never be not honest when it comes to CEOs giving an outlook statement they really are only guessing aren't they they don't know what the economy is going to do a lot of them don't have in-house economy, economists they'll be looking at the consensus of banking economists and whatever and we know those guys are often wrong too so the the <laughs> outlook so I'm an economist I can I can say that just like you know comedians can bad comedians so um, so in many ways, we, and we are in the hands of the Reserve Bank, the hands of the data that drops in the USA, than what the Federal Reserve does. But if, if it turns out to be just a little bit soft, uh, a little less dramatic, a little less tight in terms of interest rate rises, their outlook statements may well prove to be more negative than they needed to be. Sure, Pete.
2: Look, you know, it's it's really all about expectations. Um, we if we talked about U.S. inflation, for example, back in March, uh, it was about eight and a half percent. The market would have been really, really worried. Um, if we took the same number, inflation at eight point five percent for the U.S., you know, in a month in a month just passed, investors have flipped and they're kind of celebrating. So it's really all about expectations, right? So at this point. We're looking through numbers and we're looking through the assumptions that CEOs are bringing to the table where guidance is concerned. And I think expectations are somewhat more realistic. And that's why share prices at this moment are actually fitting through better than expected on the upside. Yeah. So it's really about looking forward rather than looking backwards.
0: Okay. So, so what stocks then, as a consequence of reporting season, have you either decided to, to start liking and start buying, or that you may well have already bought and you're adding to it, or the final one, you've looked at and you're actually reducing your exposure? So there's, there's three, three questions. Let's do the first one first. Um, a, a company
2: is reported that you're now starting to accumulate. Sure. Look, let me let me put it. Take the easiest one first, which is yeah. which our company is, which uh, is coming through reporting season well um, and looking very positive from my perspective. And I'll take a the the slightly more difficult one, which is uh, companies which are thinking, we're thinking about,
3: hmm.
2: uh, which looks interesting. And finally, companies which kind of we're not so sure. So right. starting first bucket, companies which are, are doing pretty well, or better than expected, um, I call out News Corp. Um, News Corp reported last week um, News Corp, as you know, is into the media business uh, in the US, owns a big chunk of re- realestate.com in Australia. And I think that company, News Corp, is sitting out quite well in this scenario. And the reason I raise that is because um, our immediate, I, I guess, reaction to News Corp is that it's exposed to um, the advertising site. So a lot of mm-hmm. advertising goes through newspapers, etc but it's proven to be much more resilient as a business, as a conglomerate um, than what investors have uh, thought it would be. So a lot of built up into digital earnings, subscription-based earnings, and the digital real estate portal business is doing really well. So that's one company which in my mind is clearly um, doing better than expected and is really clear by from my perspective, um, from these results. Yeah, it's kind of
0: become a more modern business, News Corp. Once upon a time, you didn't know which way they are going to go. They made some mistakes with like MySpace, uh, but they, they really are getting it right now, aren't they?
2: I think so, Pete. I think the crux of it is that the move towards digital uh, subscribers has been great for the company. Mm. Um, the realestate.com businesses, as you know, I know, and and, uh, our viewers will know, it's doing really, really well. Mm. And the fact that it's moved away significantly from traditional um, classified businesses in terms of newspapers, etc. That's been, I think, the crux of where the business resilience is coming through, Pete.
0: Okay. That's a good one in a good bucket. Uh, You got any more in that bucket? Absolutely.
2: Any any Um, more in that bucket? yeah, QB really stood out for me as well. So, QB is a global insurance company, mm. uh, insuring uh, big, big corporates and the likes in the US, in Europe, and Australia. Uh, what QB has come through this reporting season is great uptake in premium growth. So, they're pricing well in, in the marketplace, but also good control on its cost side of things. So, as a result, margins are actually improving um, as we sit here today. QB hasn't been the most consistent company in the last five years. And I found it really difficult to like the company as an investment proposition. Mm. But latterly in the last 18 months, I think management has done a great job in terms of putting through, again, the word resilience. Uh, Resilient comes through a more diversified business benefiting from growth in premium rates and getting costs uh, in both uh, operations and claims under control, which means margins expanding, which is what we have to look for in the market or an economic economic environment, which is a bit more challenging today. So those are kind of features we're looking through, whether it's News Corp or QBE, which kind of stands out as really good propositions on the buy side, uh, in my opinion. Let's go to the second bucket. How would you describe the second bucket? Look, second bucket are companies which are starting to look interesting, mm. uh, but we're not quite sure at this point um, whether uh, that, that, there is a catalyst in the near term, but certainly in the medium to long term. Uh, I think they'll look quite interesting from, from where I sit. And the companies I put into the bucket are companies such as GOD. Um, GOD basically supplies car parts but more latterly, it acquired a business which supplies four-wheel drive accessories into the marketplace. And that hasn't worked out quite as well, partly because supply chain and the amount of four-wheel drives coming to the country from offshore has basically been curbed because of supply chain issues. Mm. So that's one where we think it's looking quite cheap. It's trading at 11 times earnings, which is low. Um, dividend yield of just under four percent, which is quite attractive from from where we sit. But at this moment, we're waiting for new car supplies to come through in terms of four-wheel drive market, and that's quite tentative at this juncture because supply trade, uh, supply chain constraints. Okay. So that's one where you know the fundamentals look attractive, but probably amount of waiting uh, to be involved in a company like GUD, for example. Okay, so that's GUD, right? GUD. That's right. Ticker GUD.
0: yeah Let's go to the next one.
2: The final one is really uh, the most difficult uh, bucket, which really which encompasses um, the consumer sector in my view. The consumer sector is quite attractive, interesting. Um, on one hand, I think companies such as JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman, it's probably reached its peak, peak earnings, which means to say that, you know, probably more of a seller of the stock because of how, how well it's actually held up in the last 12 months, uh, despite market volatility. And consumers have continued to actually spend on electronics, so earnings have actually been really strong. Mm. So ironically, despite being a great company, the likes of J.B. Hyph and Harvey Norman, I think the earnings are probably quite peaked at this juncture. It's probably more of a sell than a buy. On the flip side, consumer discretion also I think offers some degree of uh, opportunities. There are some uh, companies which continues to be trading at really, really low levels, companies such as Sheik, for example, where expectations are really low at this point because people, investors are quite uncertain about the consumer outlook, especially in the European and US markets. And that concern is really compounded by the fact that some of these retailers have built up a lot of inventory so investors are concerned if some of these companies may be carrying too much inventory and maybe need to discount the next 12 to 18 months to get rid of stocks. So companies such as City Sheet, for example, some of the homeware shi- uh, chic yep. yep, ticker CCX or Adairs or Beacon Lighting, ticker ADH and BLX. Um, so these are some of retailers where expectations are really low at this point.
1: Yeah.
2: So trading at really low prices. And if they come through with decent results this season in August, and if the management is saying, look, things are, things are bad, but not as bad as what people are thinking about, these stocks could go up 20 30% quite easily. So that's mm-hmm. one bucket where it's hard to look through trading at attractive valuations but it could really be you know, positive, positive uh, jumps in share price, be, primarily because the may not be as bad as people expect it to be. Yeah. So that's an interesting bucket to look out for okay. as well.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want to accuse you of being a Luddite who is suspicious of technology, but there's no tech stocks in there. Are any tech stocks becoming interesting for you. Like I think in the past you might have mentioned you you liked REA. That was a a qual- we talked about the quality tech stocks we thought would do well first. And th- and I think that's pretty well the case. I, I think companies like Ordinate and Megaport have really internationally good quality technology and they will really sold off and and they have started started to come back, particularly Ordinate. But is is there a technology company that you're keeping an eye on thinking, yeah, you know, eventually the market will like this again and
2: therefore I'll get in early. Yeah, good point, Pete. Um, look, as we all know, the quality end of a town will move first and we, we're seeing that, we have seen that in the likes of RVA, car sales and uh, see, extreme today. Um, so what's interesting in the tech space is that the spectrums are really diverse We've seen the quality end of town move as we discussed for example, but we're also seeing the more speculative end of town move as we discussed, uh, Megaport, uh, maybe in Superloop, and you know some of these highly unprofitable companies starting to move. So what's attracting me is really the middle segment of the tech, tech space, uh, companies which are actually making money still Mm. Uh, but valuations are still uh, quite high. But at the same time, share prices haven't moved and companies such as Next DC, for example, yeah. fall squarely into the bucket. Yeah. So Good. these are some areas which I probably feel more comfortable with. Mm. It is not speculative, making money, but share prices haven't actually moved uh, as opposed to a quality end and an, as opposed to a more speculative end of town.
0: Yeah.
2: St Wong, thanks for joining us. Talk to you in a few weeks' time. Great, thanks
0: Pete. ST Wong from Prime Value.
3: On Tuesday, BHP reported a very solid financial year result, EBITR up 16% to over 41 US billion and underlying profit up over 26% to over 21 US billion. Joining me to discuss the result is the BHP Chief Financial Officer, David Lamond. David, welcome to the program.
1: Great to be with you.
3: Yeah, congratulations on the result. So a great outcome for BHP and BHP shareholders. What drove the increase in EBITDA and underlying profit?
1: Look, right across all of our portfolio, we're very pleased with the outcome. So all of our major commodity areas actually delivered EBITDA margins in excess of 65%. So that goes to the strength of the portfolio. Clearly prices helped uh, principally in the coal part of the division and also in uh, the coal division. We saw prices come back a little bit in the iron ore business, but at a very healthy uh, level still. So right across the board, um, we actually performed extremely well, which um, you know goes to the testament of the organisation and the people, given the headwinds that we had, obviously, around COVID and, and inflationary pressures.
3: Yeah, let's come back to the headwinds in a moment, but just in terms of the different segments, I mean, uh, you say some fantastic margins across uh, iron ore and, and copper and even coal, but I noticed that the, the nickel margin is about 21%, 22%, and yet, that, yet that's one of your sort of, future facing commodities. So you can you just talk about the you know, the commitment to nickel and ongoing investment in, in that commodity?
1: Yeah, so certainly we do see the underlying demand for nickel being fairly uh, important for us. So if we look forward the next 30 years versus the historical 30 years, we see the demand being four times. Uh, and that really plays into the world's mega trends alongside decarbonisation and, and the growth in electric vehicles is, is obviously playing into that. On our nickel business at the moment, we actually have about a third of our processing is third party ore. Um, So that's lower margin for us than it is when we're actually processing our own um, mine operations. So our focus at the moment is how do we actually get more of our own tons into our operation from a refining and smelting perspective. And we've got expenditure going on to actually firm up our exploration activity and the amount of ore that we ultimately should be able to mine and process ourselves. So coal also had some spectacular margins, I think uh, metallurgical coking
3: coal 62% and about 60% for the energy coal. So going forward, I mean again in the era of decarbonisation, where does uh, coal sit in the uh,
1: BHP portfolio? So it's important that we separate out the two parts of the coal operation as you just did. So certainly our uh, metallurgical coal, which is our BMA assets, are high premium coking coal. And we do see that that has a place into the world as the world needs to decarbonise because it enables the steel mills that still are requiring blast furnaces to process higher grade coal and thereby emit less. And that's the focus that we have, that's why We're focused on the the high premium coking coal. It's one of the reasons that we divested our BMC assets during the year, which was important. Um, On the thermal coal side Mm -hmm. of things, we have one asset left, which is the New South Wales energy coal asset uh, in the Hunter Valley region in in, uh, Australia. And we have said that we will close that mine in FY uh, 2030. uh, And that's a sensible way to transition that asset. Now, we will close that even though there will be resource available, but we think that's the appropriate thing to do from an economic <clears throat> and also a decarbonisation perspective.
3: I want to talk about the balance sheet because uh, I think net debt's down to about $0.3 billion. So uh, I mean, I guess one of the challenges for BHP, that's in many eyes a, a lazy balance sheet. So what are the plans around uh, and growth and, and maintaining those sort of returns coming, going forward?
1: Yeah, so we did finish the end of June, as you said, with $333 million of net debt. So outside our overall net debt range that we've articulated, which is between $5 billion and $15 billion. Now, we will pay out a very handsome dividend. Uh, we declared the final dividend at 175 um, cents US cents per share, which today sort of equates to let's call it like $2.49 Australian. Mm-hmm. Now, that will be 8.8 billion US that we'll pay out as a dividend. Uh, And so that will move us back up into that net debt range of that 5 to 15. Um, But certainly, it's good to have a strong balance sheet, which enables us to also further reinvest back into the business. So, in addition to the dividend, we have flagged capital expenditure for FY23 of 7.6 billion US dollars and looking to scale that up to 10 billion uh, over the medium term. So reinvesting back in the business is important as we unlock the growth options that we have in the business.
3: And talk about that reinvestment of the capital, particularly in your view about the so-called future facing commodities.
1: Yeah. So we've got a very large project, um, our Janssen stage one, which is into potash. So it gets us into a new commodity. That is some 5.7 billion US dollars that ultimately will come to the market in 2026. Um, And we're also studying Stages 2 and potentially Stages 3 and 4 are are e-marked as well. So that's the most significant project that we have today uh, from a growth perspective. But we also have the opportunity to expand our iron ore operation from currently 290 uh, up to 330 million tonnes. And we're also looking at what we can do on our copper portfolio as well. So that's opportunities that we see in South America, alongside our Escondida operation, alongside our Spence operation, um, as well as coming back here to Australia and what we see with the Olympic Dam and and Oak Dam. So future facing commodities are part of that growth platform that we see coming forward in the expenditure, as well as continuing to enhance our iron ore position. And
3: so when you look across the oceans to China and I guess current dependence on China, particularly in the iron ore market, uh, and look at some of the, uh, the tensions in that market uh, plus slowing, uh, slowing Chinese economy, uh, are you worried about uh, the, the
1: future for BHP? So certainly what we do see on the Chinese side of things from an economic perspective it is that we would expect towards uh, FY23 that there's a bit of a tailwind happening. Um, certainly there's still some lockdowns occurring in China alongside COVID. Uh, we are seeing a little bit of green shoots coming through in relation to motor vehicle output, um, but the one that we're closely watching is also construction and housing. And we do think that, that there will be further, you know, potential stimulus into that part of the Chinese economy to pull through the demand for, for steel. Um, from our own perspective, what we do see is that underpins stability for the demand that we see across um, the world, uh, and how that impacts, obviously, our demand for the commodities that we produce. So, China we see as being, you know, a stable environment mm-hmm. for us, and one that we will continue to monitor closely.
3: And finally, just talk about cost pressures because I think your guidance for, you know, the cost of digging up a ton of, uh, of ore at. Um you know, in Western Australia it's going to be a lot higher next year, obviously inflation. So just how bad or how much of an issue is it for a company
1: like uh, BHP when you look across your global operations? Well, certainly we're not immune from inflationary pressures and we do see that there are lag effect coming through. So specifically into the uh, picture that you painted in Western Australia and iron ore, we have flagged a, around about a 6% increase in our overall costs there. Um, I would just say to you, that that still we believe will put us as the lowest cost producer into that Pilbara region and and indeed globally uh, for iron ore. So we're not immune to the cost pressures um, but what we need to be able to do is concentrate on what we can control in relation to that and that's certainly around operational excellence and also labour productivity.
3: Well look uh, David congratulations on the result. I know that uh, shareholders are going to welcome the final dividend as you said that's about $2.41 Australian dollars taking the the full year to almost $4, which uh, on a $40 share price is almost 10% fully frank. But as we say to our investors, you know, never buy mining shares just for the dividend. So uh, congratulations and uh, hope to see you again
1: soon on Switzerland. Great. Thanks very much.
0: Well, joining us now is Margaret Lomas. The founder of destiny.com.au, arguably one of the best property experts in the country. Margaret, great to see you. Now who's going to argue it, Pete? <laughs> well, you know, a, I look, from my point of view, there are some experts, but you're up there as one of the best. And you've been you've Thank been you. in the game a long time, and you and that's I want to ask you about how you're going to play this allegedly big house price fall that's coming allegedly i i I say Um, but before that you've often talked about adelaide as a as a, a a safe place to invest where you get steady returns in adelaide but not spectacular returns but things seem to be changing is that right
4: absolutely and if we have a look around the country adelaide is one of the few places that isn't falling in value technically speaking, you know how I feel about the stats that show falls in value because they don't often reflect what's really happening in a market. You know, they take all of the properties in, say, Sydney and then work out what the movement has been over a month and then three months and six months. And if we get a lot of, say, top end properties falling by a significant proportion or even a small proportion it impacts on the overall reading so I'm always a little bit wary of the stats when we see them coming out but Adelaide is definitely still performing we still have a very short amount of days on the market and an undersupply of listings for the demand at the moment and a lot of people are wondering why is it just because Adelaide is now ready to go because it's never really boomed. It's always grown. I certainly have quite a number of properties in Adelaide that have done really well in the time that I've held them, both from a growth perspective and a return, a cash flow point of view. Mm. But one of the big things to note about Adelaide, where it differs from, say, Brisbane, which has also had some great growth in recent times, is that Things are changing economically in Adelaide, and this is what's further fueling the growth. So we've gone from Adelaide being primarily a manufacturing kind of economy, Mm -hmm. now switching over to communications, uh, technology, information technology, um, and also commercial and retail. We're seeing a lot more of those jobs coming through. The result of that is that we're seeing median income increase we're seeing inward migration we're seeing a lot of pressure brought to bear in those mid markets Um, and even their higher end markets which of course are far more affordable than our other two big capital cities of Melbourne and Sydney. So I do expect to see Adelaide continue to, to buck that trend of cooling for some time yet we still have highly affordable properties and for investors they have fabulous yields of around five percent sometimes more Hmm. so there's very little not to like about the adelaide market now It's a really great place for investors to be getting some fabulous buys yeah look
0: i'm just listening to you i know a lot of people for example foreigners went back home Um, to the UK, America or whatever and a lot of really great Adelaide people have ended up in Melbourne and Sydney and I'm wondering during COVID if a lot of them actually did go home maybe even sold their valuable properties in Sydney and Melbourne and thought hell there's such great value here in Adelaide there must have been a bit of that going on as well.
4: There absolutely wasn't. It's more than just the good value. It's also the fact that Adelaide had a pretty good run through COVID. They didn't have the significant lockdowns that we had. Hmm. They had fairly quick responses to COVID, which tended to work, um, it, you know, like pretty much Progressed as normal in Adelaide during the the COVID times, and that's what I think also underpinned the flourishing of these relatively new industries in Adelaide. It became the place to go and work if you wanted to be able to work uninterrupted. You didn't have to work from home if you didn't want to, but you could. Um, mm. You know, there is definitely a lot to like about Adelaide, including a pretty good lifestyle. I mean, you yeah. think about it how would you like to be only 20 minutes from the Shiraz center of arguably the world? Mm, I yeah. can't think of anything better.
0: <laughs> yeah, a lot of people would agree with you. Now let's just go to the earlier topic I mentioned, you know, with your experience. Now, I know ANZ, um, only this week, has said that they thought capital city prices would drop by 15%. Now they're saying 18%. And you've already talked about it. It's just guesswork. It's just like when economists say interest rates are going to go up to either 3% or 2.6%. It's just guesswork. But we know that the house price market boomed for a couple of years, ever since basically Bill Shorten lost that election, the house prices started creeping up again. Um, so let's assume there's going to be a reasonable pullback. Given all your experience in the market, are you looking around for value? And if so, where are you looking?
4: Mm, A good question. And I think the broader question is, what would someone be doing with their existing portfolio as well at the moment? Mm. Uh, This morning, when I turned on the television to watch a little bit of the news, I actually had a little chuckle when I saw it announced that ANZ they reported 20% on the news loss. And I said to my husband, oh my goodness, in all the years we've been in property, which is, as you say, a long, long time now, how many times have we seen a bank say property is gonna drop by 40%? Plenty of examples of people who have been making that prediction and then having to climb mountains and do things like that when they were wrong. Um, And we also have to understand when they say 20%, we aren't going to see 20% wiped off the face of the value of every property in Australia. That's just not going to happen. That's Mm. never happened. I mean, I haven't seen a time when 20% has been wiped off the face, really, of property. With the exception of one or two properties that might have sold for significantly over its value and then resold, you know, someone's bought a property for twelve million and sold it for nine um, mm. <laughs> because they probably overpaid, and that's a different story. But those kinds of figures do impact on the overall reading in terms of what should you be doing with your portfolio now, and are you where can you find value? There's a number of comments I have to make. Where I'm concerned. And I think it's important. And you would always say this to your share investors, what you do right now depends very much on where you are on life's continuum. Mm. So for me, as you know, I have a birthday coming up, I'll be 62. So I'm now looking at a time, hopefully soon, (laughs) when I'm going to be working a little less. And I have to look at my portfolio with those eyes. And I'd be considering something very different than I would have looked that, that considered if I looked 30 years ago or 20 years ago, mm. so 30 years ago, I'd be wanting to keep in my portfolio those properties that represented very good growth opportunities, and I would have wanted to buy properties that presented good growth opportunities. I was able to earn enough money to be able to support a portfolio. Cash flow wasn't as important to me. Now, the reverse is true. Because I've compiled enough assets, further growth is lovely, but I don't need it in order to fund a good retirement because I'm already at that point with my asset value. But what would be great for me is if I could continue to improve my cash flows and the more positive cash flow I can get out of a property, the more likely it is to stay in my portfolio. So I'm now looking at actually getting rid of a couple of properties out of my portfolio that still don't really give me much of a cash flow and tend to cost me money if anything goes wrong, even if those properties have some future growth, in my opinion, to go because I don't need the growth, but I also don't need a negative cash flow, draining cash flow from other properties. And I think that's a really critical thing for people to understand about their portfolios. Mm. So where would I be looking now if I was adding to the portfolio? Again, that depends on what I needed. If I wanted future growth and I had some time to wait for that growth, I actually think that Perth is providing some fabulous opportunities in both its northern and southern suburbs. And what we see happen is Perth can be a little bit slow to come to the party in terms of that mental attitude about should I commute to work any more than 20 minutes from my home and we're starting to see more acceptance as Perth spreads up and down the coast for people to realise that they can live in a beautiful suburb like say Alkimos, with every single thing going for it including having a beach there, major shopping centres, a freeway and a train line right at your doorstep, but it does take probably 30 or 40 minutes to commute back into the city. We're seeing more acceptance of that now. Hmm. And as the northern suburb spreads up into Yanchip, Yanchip is a a suburb with around about 15,000 people. The entire area is forecast over the coming 10 years to grow to around about 100,000 people then we're going to see a lot of pressure on the properties and they're still affordable. So they are bringing people particularly at the moment when the cost of living is definitely getting very difficult for a lot of everyday people. They're starting to look for those affordable options to buy property to live in. So we're going to see a lot of competition in those Northern suburbs of Perth from both investors and owner occupiers, which is really going to give growth to the, to the area, both short term and over the long term. Hmm. So I think if you've got that time to wait, you definitely can't ignore Perth, which has certainly been in the doldrums for a while, but has a great cash flow. I think we're going to see some growth come to that area. You know, another part of uh, the country that I still feel is a little bit ignored, um, those Eastern areas out of Melbourne down through Warrigal and all the way down into Sale. And again, we're seeing people now start to treat those areas a little bit more like Geelong and the central coast of New South Wales, where people can live there, they can commute back into Melbourne if needed. Let's not forget that out around Berwick there, there's a big uh, industrial and manufacturing sector um, and around the university as well, where we see a lot of commercial and retail sectors. So people can live in those further eastern suburbs that have formerly not been considered part part of Melbourne and they can commute to the outskirts of Melbourne to get plenty of work still. So we haven't seen a lot of people talk about those areas because a lot of them are formerly coal mining towns, but we're definitely seeing a different demographic moving into them and the potential for some very good growth in the coming five to 10 years.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I guess a, a structural change to the whole story is the fact that even bigger firms are allowing people to work from home. So even if it is a longer commute, you may well only be going to the office two or three days, you're having long weekends and all that sort of stuff. So the area you're talking about would be quite pleasant to live in and to uh, have great weekends at.
4: I think the other thing that we have to consider with those areas and investors particularly need to be thinking smarter about where they buy is that when we talk about these kinds of suburbs around Warragul and Churchill and those areas um, to the east of Melbourne, and there are similar areas around every capital city we have to remember that the the socio-economic group that lives there tend to be blue-collar workers and those blue-collar workers are often uh, satisfied with employment through the fact that many of our larger companies are locating their logistics centres, their call centres, the big employers and the big employment hubs in those outer suburbs as well, because they're looking for cheaper industrial land and cheaper commercial uh, premises where they can better run these these operations. Mm. So we're seeing places like the Central Coast and Geelong and, and those areas outside of Melbourne, and you know Ipswich and even Toowoomba outside of Brisbane, and if you go to Perth, right up around Yantip and south down to Mandurah and Adelaide, right down through. Christie's Beach and north up into the Barossa, where we're starting to see a lot of the bigger companies start to reside and Mm -hmm. they're drawing their employees from those areas. So we're certainly getting better results in terms of employment. And this is formerly the problem with a lot of these areas. You know, Central Coast struggled for many years with very high unemployment rates, but we're seeing that change as we're starting to see the bigger employers to town and I really suspect that this is going to be the case in so many areas and add to that fact that your point that if you are an office worker, the fact that you are allowed to work more from home than before and it's much more accepted and, you know, I always knew that that would be the case. It just came sooner than I expected. Mm. Uh, COVID brought all of that forward. So uh, when we add all of that together, we no longer Are a city-centric country, Mm. and there are plenty of opportunities which are highly affordable with great cash flows for property investors all around Australia.
0: Okay, thanks, Margaret. I did notice that when you mentioned the word Barossa, your eyes lit up. Uh, Your your passion for Shiraz is showing uh, strongly. Uh, Well, you know
4: peter it's no secret that i own a number of properties in christie's beach which is around about a 10 minute drive from mclaren vale so it's great (laughs) if i need to go and do an inspection every now and then yeah good stuff good stuff thanks for joining us margaret thank you
0: that's margaret lamas of destiny.com.au and that's the show for this week thanks for joining us if you want to know more about the sort of stocks out there that might be interesting either as a buyer or a seller Have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. And remember, we're back on Monday. I'll see you then.